Daniel chapter 9. We're going to read again verse 24 to 27. Verse 24. Seventy weeks. We should be really familiar with this passage by now, right? (laughs) Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood, Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken into this world. And we thank you that you have revealed yourself through the scriptures and through your son, whom the scriptures speak about and point to. And I pray, Lord, that this morning you would teach us and guide us and instruct us and help us to understand your scripture and to see that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for our instruction and training in righteousness. We commit this to you, Lord, and we pray that you'd be glorified in in our attitudes, in our thoughts, in our words, in my words. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is our last Sunday that we're going to be looking at uh, the 70-week prophecy of Daniel. And after this Sunday, we're going to take a break from the book of Daniel, a short break, and we'll return to our series after taking a short break. I think it would be good to take a little break after this. We've been really in the thick of this this book and dealing with a lot of exegesis and things like that. So I think we, uh, we all could use a break from it. But this will be our last Sunday on this prophecy. We'll pick up next week with chapter 10, which of course is is one unit with chapter 10, 11, and 12. So that'll be our conclusion. Um, When we pick it up again, we'll be winding down in the book of Daniel. Now this morning, we're going to look at the remaining major view that I've mentioned, the remaining major interpretation of the 70 weeks prophecy. And that's the uh, Christian, one of the Christian views that I've called the preterist view. We've looked so far at the secularist and the Jewish view, although we only briefly touched on it. And we've also looked at the other major Christian view, which is the futurist view. And we've we've spent most of our time looking at what the different Christians uh, think about this text. So we've looked at the futurist perspective that Christians take on this text. And today we're going to look at the preterist perspective. And by preterist, we mean the past. So... The preterist perspective is that this prophecy is uh, speaking about the past and, and not about the future. When I speak about the preterist view, I mean the preterist view of this text only, because preterism is a much larger system, and I'm not going to be talking about that larger system. And when you study Christian eschatology, you'll find that systems are very nuanced, and, and you could be a part of one system but agree with a person in a different eschatological system on a number of different points. So I'm really just talking about the preterist view of Daniel chapter 9, of the prophecy here in chapter 9. Now, from the very beginning of the church, there has always been disagreement in eschatology and how we interpret uh, prophetic scriptures in the Bible. So the preterist view of Daniel 9 has always existed since the very beginning. But nonetheless, the fact remains that the early church, the the earliest centuries of the church, 
was predominantly futurist in their interpretation of prophecy in the Bible and of Daniel chapter 9. They weren't only predominantly futurist uh, in the way they took the 70-week prophecy of Daniel 9, but all of Daniel's prophecies, actually, they were futurist on. So the, the statue prophecy of chapter 2, the four beasts of chapter 7, the prophetic unit of 10, 11, and 12, even chapter 8, uh, predominantly the earliest Christians were futurists. They saw that as, a, as referring to the Antichrist to come. They believed that the Bible was saying that in, at some point in the future, before the second coming of Jesus, there was going to be a coming man of sin, an individual that would arise, as they saw it in Scripture, before Christ's second coming, who would persecute the, the saints and would wreak havoc in the world and draw worship to himself, and he would ultimately be slain by the coming of the Lord. Of the Antonicene fathers, which are the, right, the Christian commentators and writers before the Council of Nicaea, all the Antonicene fathers who make mention of the 70-week prophecy of Daniel in chapter 9 place the 70th week in the future. It's very interesting. So they, they, take, the, they take the prophecy to be referring in part to Jesus' first coming and his death and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But of all the Antonician fathers who even mentioned this prophecy, they placed the 70th week in the future. This is the position that I also hold and have been sharing. Uh, I shared last week and the week before. It wasn't until we come to post-Nicene Christianity, which is the, the writings of the Christians that are after the Council of Nicaea. And how many of you remember when the Council of Nicaea was? It's a very important date in the history of the Christian church, 325 AD. And it's not until we come to post-Nicene Christianity that we first begin to see it written explicitly, um, this preterist perspective of Daniel chapter 9. The, the very first Christian commentator to say that the 70-week prophecy of Daniel is, um, is past, is not dealing with future things but of past things, is the church historian Eusebius. And also, uh, he is quoted by Jerome, and Jerome is a very famous, venerable name in the Christian history. He also believed that this was referring to the past. And Augustine, the famous theologian, also believed that this was referring to the past. It's not that they're the first ones to believe that, but they're the first that we have it explicitly written down. And those guys are pretty venerable names in the Christian church. Eusebius, Jerome, Augustine, those are big, big names in the Christian in Christian history, and they took this in a preterist way. However, it is important to note that even Eusebius and Jerome and Augustine, even those guys who departed from the earlier view that Christians held, they still believed in a coming future Antichrist figure. They still believed that there was going to be, before Jesus Christ returns, some individual that is going to come and do things that they saw the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel talking about. So they're preterists in Daniel 9. Now, there's a lot of history to talk about, and this isn't going to be a history lesson this morning, and I'd love to talk more about it, and you can talk to me about it afterwards. Ask me questions about it or correct me on it. Um, it's very interesting. What we see now today, though, in the Christian church is that futurism is again predominant. There was a a survey that was done by the National Association of Evangelicals, and they, they did a survey on the evangelical church's view on eschatology. And they came to the conclusion that predominantly most evangelicals were futurists. And they, they took Daniel 9 as referring to the future. The 70th week is referring to the future. This is a return to the situation in the earliest days of Christianity. So the way the church sees things now is a lot more similar to how it was in the very beginning. But nonetheless, the preterist view of Daniel 9 is still popular today, and there are many significant theologians, many significant names who still hold the preterist view, uh, usually in the Reformed movement of the church. And since this view is still popular and there's many uh, significant names behind it, and it was a predominant view for some time in the church, it definitely commands our respect, the preterist view. This morning, I'm going to present 
that position. I'm going to be as fair as I can, and I'm drawing all my information from proponents of this view. I'm not just guessing what they think. And then I'm going to offer a brief critique of this view and, and share why I believe this view is not, is not correct and is not um, as natural and accurate. And if you have any objections or questions or concerns, please talk to me afterwards. Verse 24. Now, obviously, how one interprets verse 24 determines the, the, your interpretation of the rest of the prophecy. You should see that by now that verse 24 is really the key to the rest of this prophecy. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to do a certain amount of things to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, and make atonement for iniquity, etc. Obviously, if verse 24 is referring to the group of Israel, Daniel's people and Daniel's city, and if we're to think of that in terms of this 70 weeks has to do with this group of people called Israel, Daniel's kinsmen, and Jerusalem, the physical city, and all those things that are listed here, that are going to be, take place uh, it, within the 70 weeks or when the 70 weeks is finished, all these things will be accomplished. If it relates to that group of people called Israel, then obviously the way you're going to take this prophecy is that it, it, it's still future. Because that group, Daniel's people and Daniel's city, certainly hasn't experienced the bringing in of everlasting righteousness and the atonement for iniquity, etc., so if you see it as a prophecy relating to that group, you're going to take it as future. So obviously the preterists don't see it that way. And the preterists have adopted what I was saying before, a paradigm shift in their mind about how they think about this group called Israel. There's a shift in their thinking. And preterists believe that this group called Israel, God was dealing with them in the past, but God is no longer dealing with them anymore. And that the promises that God made to those people in the past were not really made to them. It was, it, it seemed like it was made to them and they all thought it was made to them, but we need to understand, they say, that it was the, the, the everlasting promises that were made to them were really only made to Abraham and to those who are like Abraham and to those who are in Christ. So really that group didn't have any, doesn't have any claim to um, those promises. And thus, this prophecy doesn't need to be interpreted to, uh, to that group of Israel that we, that we remember from the Old Testament. So accordingly, they interpret verse 24 differently. Now, obviously, within verse 24, there are many good things here prophesied, atonement for iniquity, everlasting righteousness. And here's how the preterists interpret verse 24. Instead of seeing six good things here, six things listed, they see three sets of two things. Three sets of two things here. And the first set of two, to finish transgression and to make an end of sin, the predators see this as a bad thing, actually. So it's not a blessing. The first two things, they interpret this way. To finish transgression doesn't mean to stop transgression, to put an end to it. What it means is that Israel, the group, Daniel's people, are going to complete their transgression. Meaning that the, the, the transgression is going to come up to the full. They're going to do something really bad that's going to fill up the measure of their iniquity. You know how Abraham was told that the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full? So they see that the iniquity of Israel is not yet full, and 70 weeks, within this 70-week period, they, they say that Israel, that group, so this is, these first two ones are applying to that group of Israel, natural uh, Jews. They're going to complete their transgression. That's how they interpret, finish the transgression. And then the second one, to make an end of sin. The Hebrew word they point out is to seal sin, to seal up sin. And instead of thinking that means, again, to seal it in the sense of stopping sin, which is how many scholars take the words to seal up sin or stop it, the preterists interpret to seal up sin, meaning they reserve this, God is going to reserve their sin for judgment. So Israel will, make a, will complete their sin, 
And God is going to reserve their sin for judgment. And that reserving of the sin or that sealing of the sin, they see that as God reserving it for judgment in 70 AD. The rest of the things in verse 24 are good, but they're not applied to that group of Israel. So to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and to anoint the most holy, those are all good things that are going to happen within the 70 weeks, but they're not applied to Israel. That's just talking about Jesus Christ coming, his death. He's going to, he's going to make atonement for sin. He's going to bring in everlasting righteousness for anyone who believes. It doesn't have any special reference to Israel. So it's very important to see how the preterists interpret verse 24. So, that they, so we can understand why they say that the 70 weeks have already been completed and all these things have been fulfilled. All of this is done. Now look at verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So I've argued uh, in the past that the beginning of this prophecy, and clearly here there's a beginning and there's a, there's a what they call in Latin a terminus aequo, aequo and a terminus ad quem, but I won't use the Latin words. There's a beginning and there's a, there's a demarcation to this 69 weeks. It starts and it ends somewhere, the 69 weeks, which is 7 and 62. And as I've argued, the, the starting point for this, I've argued, is is Artaxerxes' command to Nehemiah in 444 BC when Artaxerxes says, go and restore Jerusalem, build the walls. And I've pointed out that there's a qualification here in this passage that the walls will be built. And that's very important what was going on at that time um, regarding the walls. And the only decree that had to do with the walls was the one to Nehemiah. Now, preterists don't interpret this as starting at 444 BC, even though... When you start at 444 BC, you have a really amazingly literal and accurate uh, prophecy that takes us right to the, to the last days of Jesus Christ. And even though that's amazing, preterists don't follow that line of reasoning, and for a reason you'll see. Now, there isn't unanimity here among scholars on when you should start this. Many scholars think this should be taken as a symbolic figure, so you don't even need to look for a literal kind of fulfillment. Of course, it's always nice when you do things symbolically because then you can really start wherever you want and end wherever you want, right? And the other bonus of being symbolic is that you're more respectable in people's eyes, unfortunately. If you take this, uh, some futurists take this symbolically as well, by the way. They, they just take it symbolically, start it where they want, end it where they want, and put the 70th week in the future. Many preterists take it symbolically. They, they often will start with the command to Cyrus to go back to Jerusalem and start uh, repopulating it, and then they'll take it to wherever they want. And the preterists, here's the important point here. The preterists end the 69 weeks, typically, most of them do this, at the baptism of Jesus. They end it at the baptism of Jesus, not the triumphal entry, but the commencement of Christ's ministry. And those who take it symbolically, like I said, they can start it when they want, but they end it at the baptism. However, many preterists don't want to take it symbolically because they think that there's no reason to take it symbolically. There's actually good reason to take it literally. And we should take it literally. 69 weeks, 483 years. And what they do is they start the 69-week prophecy or period of time at Artaxerxes' command to Ezra. Because Artaxerxes gave a command not just to Nehemiah, but to Ezra. And that command was given in four. 58 BC, and you can read about it in Ezra chapter 7. And if you start at 458 BC, and you go ahead 483 years or 69 weeks without using a 360 day year, uh, year without, without uh, using a 360 day year, but just using a 365 day year, you will arrive in 26 AD which is when preterists believe that Jesus was baptized. So they believe they have a literal period of time 
from Artaxerxes' command to Ezra, which was simply, Ezra, go to Jerusalem and take care of the religious situation there. But they take it from there, 69 weeks, to the baptism of Jesus in 26 AD. In fact, it, it, it takes you exactly to 26 AD, the year they believe he commenced his ministry. Verse 26. It'll make more sense why they go to the baptism in a moment. So we arrive at Jesus Christ. The preterists and the futurists are all agreed that verse 26 is referring to our Lord Jesus Christ and his death where he was cut off. There's no disagreement there. Verse 26 is describing the death of Jesus Christ and the death of Jesus Christ is in fact the basis for the bringing in of everlasting righteousness and that which atones for our iniquity. The preterists and the futurists agree that the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD is being mentioned here in verse 26. In fact, even the Jews believe that the destruction of Jerusalem is being mentioned here in verse 26. But the question, for the, the question here is, who is the prince to come in verse 26, where it says, the people of the prince who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Who is the prince to come? And what is that prince's relationship to the he in verse 27? Because grammatically, and this is something that preterists and futurists will all acknowledge and secularists and Jews will acknowledge, that the he of verse 27 is, is most naturally grammatically related to the prince of verse 26. For preterists, verse 27, here's the really crucial difference. For preterists, the verse 27 is not future at all, but it's past. And verse 27 is an expansion of what has been said already in verse 26. Verse 27 is an expansion of what has been said already in verse 26. So we talked about the death of Jesus in verse 26. We talked about the destruction of Jerusalem in verse 26. And verse 27 is just going over that again and giving further information and further details. To the preterist, the 70th week of Daniel in verse 27 simply follows immediately on the heels of the 69 weeks. So there's no gap between the 69th week and the 70, 70th week. It's 70 weeks without any breaks or gaps or divisions from the beginning all the way to the end. And the end of the 69th week gets us to the baptism of Jesus. And they believe from the baptism of Jesus is the beginning of the 70th week. Seven more years and then this is completed. Some preterists will say the prince in verse 26 is Titus or Vespasian, one of the Roman rulers who came and destroyed the, the temple. But there's trouble with saying that because of, as I mentioned, the grammar connects the he of 27 with the prince of 26. And so for that reason, a lot of preterists actually don't see the prince as Vespasian or Titus because they can't make a good argument that verse 27 is talking about Vespasian or Titus. So more popularly, preterists will argue that the prince of verse 26 is none other than the Messiah himself. So the prince of verse 26 is the same prince that we heard about in verse 25. Look at verse 25. Until Messiah, the prince. And so the preterists will say, we shouldn't see two different princes here. We should see only one prince. We should just unite both of those princes in one. So the prince to come is Messiah Jesus. And the way of speaking there is the, it, I mean, it's a little odd because the prince is, in a, or Messiah has already come. The Messiah will be cut off, it says. But they just think uh, linguistically, the language is such that it's just referring to the Messiah again. The Messiah who this prophecy is talking about will come. Now the trouble with making Messiah that is that it says that the people of the Messiah will destroy the temple and the city. So the trouble is, how can we say that the, the people of Jesus destroyed the city and the sanctuary? And there's two different ways that preterists will 
respond to that. One, those, one is kind of a radical claim, is that the Christians really did destroy the temple through their prayers. So by the Christians praying for the destruction of Jerusalem, that's how the Christians destroyed the temple. That's a view that, that some take. The other way of taking it is they see the Romans who destroyed the temple as the agents of the Messiah. And so in that way, they, they interpret the people of the prince to be the, the agent of the Messiah, that the Romans coming and destroying, that was really Jesus coming and destroying through them as they were his tool, they were his hammer. What the preterists are arguing for is that verse 27 is talking about the first coming of Jesus. It's talking about Jesus Christ, not an antichrist in the future. And this is really the strength of the preterist position because it's about Jesus, not antichrist. And the more verses that we can make about Jesus and, and shed light upon his, his work, the better. And so there's an appeal there to say, hey, this is really about Christ. And there's a strength there. But we need to be cautious about believing in an interpretation simply because it is about Christ. Just because of, you, can, you can make a verse about Christ doesn't mean that's what that verse is actually meaning, right? You could argue for any verse being about Christ, just about. I was thinking about it myself. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. I could preach a gospel sermon from that. And I could say, let's celebrate because tomorrow we're going to go to heaven. Right? That's not what that verse means. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die and go to heaven. That's not what that verse means. But I could preach that, and it would be edifying probably, and it's about the gospel. But just because it's about the gospel in a positive, encouraging way doesn't necessarily mean that that's what it is about, right? So we shouldn't be quick but be cautious about just jumping on board, making passages directly about Christ, just because we want things to be directly about Christ. But the preterists want, verse, or they argue that verse 27 is about Christ, not the Antichrist. This is the thing that really shocks me, to be honest with you, about Christian eschatology. The thing that's the most shocking is that Christians can come to radically different interpretations about the same passages. So radical, in fact, that one group of Christians, and a lot of them do, can say, this passage is about Christ. And other group of Christians, and a lot of them, can say, this passage is about the opposite of Christ. <laughs> it's about Antichrist. Isn't that amazing? One says it's about Christ, and one says it's about Antichrist. That couldn't be any more different. That's how, that's really one of the most fascinating things about eschatology. Verse 27, according to the preterist, is an expansion of what went before. You'll notice in verse 26, it says, after 69 weeks, or after, it says 62, but that's the 62 uh, connected to the original 7, which is 69. So, after the 69 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. After that. And the preterist argues, well, what comes naturally after the 69th? What comes naturally after the 69th is the 70th. So when the scripture says here, after the 69th, we're talking about the 70th week. The preterist argues that this is the most natural way of interpreting Daniel chapter 9, and that the futurist position of putting the 70th week in the future is unnatural. Who, who puts a break between 69 and 70? Who does that? It doesn't say you should do it here. So if he says 70 weeks are appointed, naturally we should think it's just 70 consecutively, sub subsequently. There's no break. The futurists are committing an unnatural uh, act. So verse 27 begins this way. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Now, the preterists argue that this needs to be translated differently, this phrase. And it's very important to their position that it is translated differently. Instead of the Hebrew saying, he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, the preterist interpreters argue that the Hebrew should be this way. One week will confirm the covenant to many. One week will confirm the covenant to many. And the sense 
of that translation is that in this last week, God will confirm his covenant. In this last week, a covenant is going to be made. Not a covenant is going to be made for one week. You see how that could be damaging to their position. Not a covenant is going to be made for the duration or the temporary period of time for one week. But in this last week, in the seventh week, a covenant is going to be made or confirmed. Now, the covenant that the preterists believe is in view here is the covenant of grace. It is the new covenant that Jesus Christ made. So the covenant is the covenant in his blood. Jesus came and through his death brought us the new covenant within the last week. The last week brought that to us. And the details are even, uh, according to the preterist, more given. In the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. So who is the he according to the preterist here? It's Christ. So Christ will make a covenant in that one week, not for one week. And Christ will do that in the middle of the week. And when he does that in the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Can you kind of see their reasoning here? There's an appeal, there's, a, there's an attractiveness to this. Uh, what, what, what do you think they mean by the sacrifices and the offerings going away? What they mean by that is everything the book of Hebrews has to say to us. So through the death of Jesus, no more do we need to offer animal sacrifices and sacrifices at the temple. So in the middle of the week, Jesus will die, and by his death, he'll confirm this covenant, and no more will we need sacrifices and offerings. Now, it's interesting, the preterists say that if you start at the commencement of Jesus's ministry, which is his baptism, in 26 AD, and you move forward three and a half years, that's a half of a week, you come roughly, because we really don't know exactly and for sure, but you come roughly to the crucifixion. So Jesus' ministry lasted about three and a half years, from his commencement to his crucifixion. That's the 70th week. In the middle of the week, he'll die, and the sacrifices and grain offerings will end. So it's, it's important for us to see the attractiveness of this position. Though the sacrifices didn't literally stop when Jesus died, right? Because they continued on for another 40 years. The preterists would say, well, the veil of the temple was ripped when he died. And according to Hebrews, what really stopped was the need for the sacrifices. On the wing of abominations, verse 27 goes on to say, will come one who, make, who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, most preterists here say that this latter part of verse 27 is but an expansion on the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So we, we've got the confirmation of the covenant, the death of Christ in the middle of the week, and then the rest of the verse is actually not even dealing with the 70th week at all. It's dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem. There's going to be the abomination of desolation. They'll, they'll, they'll look to um, the Gospels where Jesus talked about the army surrounding Jerusalem and bringing desolation. And the complete destruction is poured out upon the, desolation, on the desolator. They would, they would say that's referring to complete destruction being poured out upon Israel in 70 AD. Thus, the preterist view of verse 24, of verse 25 and 26, and of verse 27. And you can contrast that with the futurist position in verse 24, which says that this is to Israel the group, all those things are good. Verse 25 and 26, we've got 69 weeks from the command to Nehemiah to the last days of Jesus. And then you've got a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week that takes us to the Antichrist in the future for the 70th week. There's the two major views in the Christian church. Now I'd like to offer a brief critique of what I see, of that which I see is wrong in the preterist view and why I believe in the futurist view. 
and why I believe the futurist view is more reasonable. First, going back to verse 24, the futurists argue, and I believe this is correct, there is no good reason to divide the application of the things in verse 24, some of them to Israel and some of them not to Israel. There's simply no good grammatical reason and no good contextual reason to do that. And that the, the preterist's interpretation of verse 24 is not grammatically or contextually driven, but it's presuppositionally driven. That is, because of their view of Israel in their presupposition of approaching this text, they're going to have to do something with this text other than what is grammatically natural or contextually natural. Because in context, consider that Daniel is praying for his kinsmen and for the city of Jerusalem. And he's praying that God would act and bless them and God would reverse their fortunes. And this angel comes to him and gives him the response to his prayer. His prayer, as I've mentioned, is covenantal. It has to do with Israel, that group's relationship to God, based in Mount Sinai. But also, Daniel is appealing to the greater underlying covenant that God has with Abraham, and that God would bless his people because of his mercy and for his great name. And as John Calvin himself reminds us in his comments on verse 24, all of these things are good, and that this message from Gabriel to Daniel is good news, not bad news for Israel. God doesn't show up to Daniel in the light of his prayer and say, sorry, Daniel, it's going to be bad for your people and for your city, but nonetheless, atonement and will be made and everlasting righteousness will be brought in for whoever. And Calvin reminds us this is actually good news that Gabriel brings. So contextually, there's no reason at all to divide verse 24 like the preterists do. It's presuppositionally driven. Furthermore, grammatically, it is not correct to do what they do. The Hebrew word kala, finish, transgression, is better translated restrict or stop translation, transgression than complete transgression. The word communicates to us transgression is going to come to an end. The very same word for seal in verse 24 where it says to seal up sin, it's the very same word that's used later in verse 24 to seal up vision and prophecy. And the idea is to finish vision and prophecy, to, to finish sin, to put an end to it and put an end to vision and prophecy, not to reserve vision and prophecy for damnation or for destruction. So grammatically, uh, the Hebrew doesn't support the idea of complete or fill up the measure of their sin or reserve sin for destruction. So for those two reasons, I argue and others argue that the preterist view is off to a bad start with the 70 weeks of Daniel. It's a presuppositionally driven position. It's contextually and grammatically flawed. There's no good reason to not take all of those things as good things applied to Daniel's people and Daniel's city. Verse 25, the preterist view depends upon the 69 weeks terminating at the baptism in 26 AD. Whether they take it symbolically or literally, it depends upon the commencement of the 70th week at the baptism. And why is that? Because in the midst of the week, Jesus dies. So if the death of Jesus is in the midst of the week, then the beginning of the 70th week has to start three and a half years earlier, which would take them to the baptism. So keep that in mind. The preterist view depends upon the 69 weeks terminating at the baptism and the 70th week starting at the baptism. This is why they reject the otherwise amazing prophecy from 444 BC, which takes you right to the last days of Jesus. Because if the 69th week ends at the last days of Jesus, that doesn't allow for... Uh, Jesus' death at the middle of the 70th week. In order for the preterists to maintain a literal interpretation, as I said, they start at 458 BC and they take us to 26 AD. That would make the death of Jesus in 30 AD. 
in 30 AD. And preterists, for the most part, by and large, believe that Jesus died in 30 AD. Now, please turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. I can't emphasize more how important the date of the crucifixion is when interpreting the 70 weeks of Daniel. We, we can't ignore when Jesus died and his date and interpret the 70 weeks correctly. You have to be able to, to consider when Jesus died. And if you don't consider that, then there's really no way of understanding when the 70 weeks, what's the 70th week talking about. Look at verse, chapter 3, verse 1. And Luke here, who's very concerned about timing, gives us the beginning, not of, this gives us the commencement, not of Jesus's ministry, but of John the Baptist's ministry. And John the Baptist preceded Jesus in his ministry, right? Now here's what it says in, John, in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Traconitis, and Lysanias was the tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John the, to John the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. So Luke gives us a very explicit chronological beginning of the of the John the Baptist and his ministry, which, remember, is before Jesus' commencement. Now, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius is very important because historians know when Tiberius' reign began. It's not a mystery. Just grab an encyclopedia and you'll be able to, to see. Tiberius' reign as Caesar began in 14 A.D., in 14 AD. There is no confusion about that. Caesar Augustus died in 14 AD, and Tiberius, who was the next Caesar, uh, became Caesar in 14 AD. Now, if you start in 14 AD, what is the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar's reign? And the number is plainly 29 AD. 29 AD. That's not when Jesus started his ministry. That's when John the Baptist started his ministry. That gives us a date for the ministry of John and the ministry of Jesus that's incontrovertible. Now, the preterists see this, and this doesn't fit, because if, if John's ministry began in 29 AD, how then can we say that Jesus died in 30 AD? It doesn't fit, does it? How can we, that, that's, not, that's not in the middle of the week if the 70th week commences with the baptism of Jesus. So the preterists will argue, well, Tiberius' reign didn't begin in 14 BC, AD, they'll say. Tiberius' reign began in 12 AD because in 12 AD, Tiberius was made co-ruler with Augustus in 12 AD. It's just a matter of history. And so if you, if you start his reign in 12 AD and you say the 15th uh, year of Tiberius, that'll lead you to roughly the 26th AD. Again, the baptism of Jesus, everything is still good. And the problem with this, and I'll quote the uh, ancient historian J.K. Fotheringham, who did a study on this, and his study was specifically on when did Tiberius' reign begin. He says this, all our evidence points to one conclusion. He concludes this after going through all this evidence of, uh, of historians from the ancient world, of coins, of uh, basically, I, he gathers all the evidence. I can give you this, uh, this resource if you'd like to read it for yourself. All of our evidence points to one conclusion, that the regnal years of Tiberius throughout the whole empire were reckoned from his succession to full imperial authority, not from his co-regency with Augustus. So they've dug up lots of coins, they've dug up lots of letters, they've dug up lots of things, and all the historians, that you can read it in Tacitus himself, or in Suetonius, or in Pliny, other Roman historians, they all say... Tiberius began his rule in 14 AD. The co-regency was more of a, um, 
a uh, what do you call it? A uh, pleasantry or a uh, formal formal thing. Thus, brothers and sisters, the clearest uh, and most natural interpretation of when John started his ministry is in 29. Jesus could not have commenced his ministry in 26, and therefore he couldn't have died in the middle of the week. This makes the futurist literal interpretation the only viable literal interpretation. The only thing the, the preterists can resort to is the symbolic one, which weakens their case. Thirdly, and lastly, let's go back to Daniel chapter 9. <clears throat> The preterists say that putting no gap in there, or I guess not putting a gap in there, is the most natural thing to do when we're dealing with the 70-week prophecy. And upon first glance, it is. Upon first glance, it does seem unnatural to put a gap between the 69th and the 70th. It does seem more natural just to take them consecutively. But what can at first appear natural can, upon closer examination, appear unnatural. And the futurists, this is what they say. You're right. It does at first appear more natural not to put any gap there. But look closer. You're not looking close enough. You're not taking it. Uh, you're not, your, your, your examination here is too brief. It is unnatural to hold that the 70th week follows the 69 weeks immediately when both the 69 weeks and the 70th week are demarcated in Scripture by a beginning and an end sign. And when you discern the beginning and end of the 69 weeks by its given signs, to not also discern the beginning and the end of the 70th week by its given signs is unnatural. Does that make sense? The 69-week time is demarcated by two events, from the going forth of the command to restore Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince. So there's two events that demarcate that period. There's also two events that demarcate the 70th week. A covenant is made with many for one week, is what the beginning of the week is, and the destruction of the he is the end of that 70th week. And so the 70th week is also demarcated by signs. And if we're going to read the text and know when to begin the 69th week by its sign, and know when to end the 69th week by its sign, then we should also know when to begin the 70th week by its sign and know when to end the 70th week by its sign. Because consider that uh, we don't just start counting the 70 weeks from the moment Gabriel said to Daniel that there would be 70 weeks. So Gabriel comes and says, there's going to be 70 weeks for your people. Now the most natural way of reading that is, okay, 70 weeks from here on. But then he qualifies and says, no, no, don't start counting now from the going forth of the command to rebuild Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince, there will be seven, uh, 60, seven weeks and 62 weeks, right? So it at first seems most natural just to say, there'll be 70 weeks, hey, great. But then he says, don't start counting until you see this sign. And then there's going to be a seventh, 70th week, and there's going to be a sign that begins that as well. And so if we did the same with the 69th, then we ought to do the same with the 70th. Well, we should know when it begins by the demarcating signs, not just when we think it should be. This is actually how Bible prophecy is done. And this is how we are to see the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. We look for the fulfillment of Bible prophecy by what is written and when what it says is fulfilled. That's when we know a prophecy has been fulfilled when what is written is fulfilled. And so if what is written isn't fulfilled, even if it seems like it should have been fulfilled, that doesn't mean we can say that it's been fulfilled. 
For example, Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between your seed and his seed, and, his, and, and your seed will crush the head of the serpent. Now, the most natural way of reading that, if there wasn't any more qualifications, is that Cain was going to kill Satan. Right? I'm going Eve, your son, your seed, the, your descendant who comes out of you, is going to crush the head of the serpent. So the most natural way of reading that is, okay, my descendant, my seed, my son, is going to destroy the head of the serpent. It would be very natural to expect that in the next generation. But since the head of the serpent wasn't destroyed in the next generation, we think, ah, that's not what that prophecy meant. It, it may seem natural to just take it immediately like that, but I'm waiting here. It's going to be a later seed, something down the road. Or consider Psalm 16, verse 10, where David says, you will not let your Holy One see decay. And David is talking about himself, it seems, in that psalm. So the most natural way of reading that psalm is David won't see any decay. That's the most exegetically, grammatically natural way of reading that psalm. And so we could either do one of two things. We can say, in some way, David didn't see decay. Because it's, it's naturally spoken about David. So I know that it looks like he sees decay, but in some way he didn't see decay. Let me try to work that out. Or we can do what Peter did on the day of Pentecost and says, brothers and sisters, let me be plain with you. David's rotting in the grave right now, right? This obviously wasn't to him. This was to Jesus, who actually didn't see decay. And so we, we know the fulfillment of a prophecy when what it says is going to happen, happens. That's how you know the fulfillment of a prophecy. Not when you think it most naturally should happen. And since the 70th week is demarcated by two events, actually there's even three events, there's a, middle, there's a middle event, the taking away of the sacrifice. Therefore, we should look for the fulfillment of those events in order to determine whether the 70th week has taken place or not. It's not a coincidence that the preterists are fuzzy on those demarcation points. The preterists are fuzzy on those demarcation points of the 70th week. For example, that translation of the first part of verse 27, he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, and they translate it, one week will confirm the covenant to many. Now you'll notice that that doesn't, that new translation that they put forth, one week will confirm the covenant for many, doesn't give us a demarcation point. It just says there's going to be seven weeks to make this thing happen. And so they blur the demarcation point. But you will notice that virtually all Bible translations do not translate it the way that the preterists translate it, because that's not the natural way of reading the Hebrew. And I'll quote Moses Stewart, and I think this is a powerful, powerful point that this very venerable uh, exegete said here uh, about two centuries ago. He said this. Some translate it, one week shall confirm a covenant. Now here's a very powerful challenge to the preterist view. But why seven years? One week will confirm a covenant, or the covenant. The new covenant, the preterists say. Why seven years, Moses Stewart says? They admit that the ministry of Christ lasted only some three or three and a half years. What then constitutes the limits of the seven. His question is, if the new covenant is in view, why does it take seven years in order for the new covenant to be made? Why, why not, and three and a half years will confirm a covenant or bring in the new covenant? What is significant about seven years confirming the covenant? Why does that seven, what, what happened three and a half years after Jesus died that needs to be there in order for the new covenant to be brought in. Isn't the new covenant brought in in three and a half years when the Jesus died? Why seven? What, what's the seven for? And then he goes on to say, besides the violence done to the language in this case is forbidding. It's the, it's the consensus of most uh, Hebrew scholars that that's not the natural way of reading this text. And this is why all of our Bible, Bibles don't translate it that way. It translates it it, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, meaning a covenant is going to be made for a temporary amount of time. This is not talking about the new covenant. 
As John Gill tells us, this is not to be understood of the Messiah's confirming the covenant of grace with many by fulfilling the conditions of it and by his blood and sacrifice, through which all the blessings of it come to them. For this is not for one week only, but forever. Gill says this isn't talking about the new covenant because the new covenant is forever. The new covenant isn't a covenant that is made for one week. And the most natural interpretation or translation here is that the covenant is made for one week. So there's problems with the preterist's interpretation of the, of the first verse, of the first line in verse 27. Thus the beginning of the 70th week is clearly marked by the establishment of a covenant for seven years. In the middle of the week, the sacrifices cease and the abomination of desolation comes. And here are two big problems with the preterist's view. As I mentioned before, number one, the sacrifices did not cease when Jesus died. When Jesus died, the sacrifices did not cease. What did cease was, well, actually, you could even argue against this. Um, the preterists say the need for the sacrifices ceased when Jesus died. But the text does not say that the need for the sacrifices will cease when Jesus died. The text says that the sacrifices will cease when Je- in the middle of the week. Right? Exegetically, it doesn't say the need for them will stop, but that they themselves will stop. And one could even argue that sacrifices never at any time had efficacy to forgive us of our sins. That salvation was always by the death of Jesus Christ. And the, the rending of the veil was the demonstration of that. It was the end of the need for the sacrifices. It was the end of the need for the ceremony and for the symbols. But it wasn't the end of the efficacy of the sacrifices because the sacrifices never had efficacy to begin with. Does that make sense? So the text doesn't say the need will stop, but that they will stop. And the sacrifices simply did not stop when Jesus died. The second problem with the preterist view is that this stopping of the sacrifices and the abomination of desolation is spoken of elsewhere. It's spoken of in other places. It's spoken of in other places in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 8, in Daniel chapter 11, in Daniel chapter 12, and in the book of Revelation. And so whatever our interpretation of the stopping of the sacrifices is and the abomination of desolation, must harmonize with the other places the Bible talks about those very things. And to say that the taking away of the sacrifices is the death of Jesus, anyone who reads the chapter 8 or chapter 11 of Daniel or chapter 12 or the book of Revelation will see it's not going to be very easy to say that the taking away of the sacrifices and the abomination of desolation is the crucifixion. You've got to harmonize the other relevant passages as well. And that poses a major problem for the preterist view. What about the end marker? What about the end point of the 70th week? And here is one of the most fascinating things about the preterist view. You remember how I said in verse 27 that the preterists take the latter part of verse 27 as referring to the 70th, to, to the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem? What that means is that nothing is said in verse 27 about the end of the 70th week. In the middle of the week, Jesus will die, they say. And then much later, the temple will be destroyed. Nothing at all is said about the end of the 70th week in verse 27. And I'm going to quote to you two very prominent preterists on, the, on their view on the end of the 70th week. Kenneth Gentry, one of the most prolific writers of uh, preterism. The exact event that ends the 70th week is not so significant for us to know, period. That's another way of saying, I don't know what the end is, and it's not really important, is it? That's interesting. In the light of the fact that Gabriel says, 70 weeks are appointed to bring in everlasting righteousness, make an end of sin, make atonement for iniquity, end up the prophecies, seal them, anoint the most holy. And the 70 weeks, not 69 and a half weeks, but 70. And yet, what happens at the end is not important or significant for us to know. One of the major commentaries of the preterists is a man, Edward Young, who wrote on Daniel. He says this about the end of the 70th week. It would seem, therefore, 
that the terminus ad quem, which is the end of the 70th week, was not regarded as possessing particular importance or significance. Isn't that amazing? Now here's, again, another fascinating thing about Christian eschatology, how one, one group can say it's, not him, it's one thing and one group can say it's another thing altogether. One can say this is about Antichrist and one can says, say this is about Christ. One can say the end of the 70, 70th week is not even a big deal. And one group can say the end of the 70th week is a huge For the end of the 70th week is when everlasting righteousness is brought in for Israel, that group. It's the destruction of the Antichrist. It's the second coming of Jesus. It's the reversal of the, it's the, it's the end of the age and the bringing in of the new age. It's the, it's, it's the consummation of what the Old Testament was all looking for. One says, nothing, no big deal. And one says, this is everything we're looking for. And brothers and sisters, I think the futurists are closer to the truth when they talk about the end of the 70th week being significant and being clearly demarcated and referring to the coming of the Lord Jesus and the salvation of Israel. Therefore, not only is a gap before the 70th week possible, it is exegetically warranted and it is historically natural to do so. It's possible, it's warranted, and it's natural to do so. Maybe not at first glance, but upon further consideration. And with that, I close my case, and we finish looking at the 70th week prophecy. Now, I'd like to close this sermon by saying this. However much we Christians disagree about eschatology, we all agree that we are unrighteous sinners in need of a righteousness outside of ourselves. And we all agree that that righteousness is the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And we all agree that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came into the world at the right time and he died for us and that it's through him that atonement for iniquity is made and that everlasting righteousness is brought in. And throughout the ages, Christians have disagreed about all sorts of things and various topics, but that has only gone, gone to show where our unity actually lies. It lies in Jesus Christ and in the fellowship of his gospel. If you separate from another Christian over eschatology, or if you put walls up between you and another Christian over your disagreement about whatever in the Bible with another Christian who believes in the same gospel that you do, you have totally missed the point of Christianity. And this is important to say because these kind of issues tend to put up walls and tend to cause divisions, even though that would totally miss the point of Christianity. Because our unity doesn't lie in those things, but it lies in Christ alone. We're going to be taking communion this morning, and communion is a symbol of the death of Jesus Christ, of his body that was broken and his blood that was shed for our sins to make atonement and to bring in everlasting righteousness for us. And the Lord's Supper is something that all Christians share in together. By taking it together, we demonstrate what makes us one, not our eschatology or our views on spiritual gifts, but our faith in Jesus Christ. And so, let us do that this morning as we take the Lord's Supper. And let us do it together, conscious of our unity, and rejoice in what our unity actually lies. As the Apostle Paul said, we who take of this we who partake of this fellowship are one body. And whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the unity that we have in Christ. And I pray that you would take us here this morning this little congregation, this little fellowship, Lord, and you would drive this point home to us 
that we are one in Christ, regardless of our disagreements on various matters. That you would protect us from ever putting up walls or dividing from one another over secondary things. May we, as a congregation, Lord, grasp this and advance in this truth, Lord, beyond what has sadly been seen in the church, typically. Make us so conscious of our unity, Lord, that we would draw near to one another and embrace one another because we are disciples of you. Thank you for the privilege of studying your word. Make us people of understanding, people who sharpen each other, people who can disagree and talk about these things graciously. And Lord, we pray that in all of this, you'd be honored and glorified by our behavior and our actions. We thank you for the overwhelming love that you have for us, that we only understand even just the smallest portion. Thank you for the privilege of taking the Lord's Supper. May you encourage us and lift our eyes and our thoughts to things above as we do so this morning as one body. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.